Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am so excited that you're about to listen in on another episode of the Made Possible by podcast. I wanted to take a quick second to let you know exactly what we do. Made Possible by makes giving easy for community-minded businesses and provide a more effective way to share their stories of good. Now let's jump into the podcast. Welcome to the Made Possible by podcast, where we have conversations around good with community-minded individuals. We hope that today's episode inspires you to go out and do good. Hello, and thank you again for joining us for another conversation around good. I am Tracy Zerden, your host for All Things Good. I am with Made Possible By, and Made Possible By is all about making good loud. We love to unite people, causes, and companies to make greater good together. And today I'm excited to have a two guests today from an organization here in Oklahoma. I don't know where you're listening from around the world, but today we are in Oklahoma and I am with two fun individuals from Kim Ray. And Kim Ray, Thomas, I'm going to let you give the spiel on what Kim Ray does because my husband would go, you you said it wrong. So I'm going to go ahead and let you do that. And then I'll introduce you guys. So go ahead. What does Kim Ray do? Well, thank you, Tracy. Kim Ray is a uh, 72-year-old manufacturer of oil and gas equipment and controls uh, founded right here in Oklahoma. And, and our main and only manufacturing facility is here in Oklahoma, although our product is sold all over the world. And, and really, our products revolutionized the production of oil and gas back in the late 40s and early 50s. And we've continued to do that. Um, that's what we do. That's not why we exist, but we'll talk about that a little bit more yes, later. Yes, exactly. I want to talk more about how Kimry started and uh, how cool Garmin was because he did some really cool things. So we'll, t- we'll tell all you listeners who Garmin is here in a minute. But I have with us Amy Mason. Maybe Amy is the executive director of the Kimmel Foundation. She is also the owner of Mason Consulting Services, and you are a graduate of Auburn. University. Yes, I am. Uh, Regal. There you go. Uh, you graduated with a degree in interior architecture. Yes. That's very different than what you're doing now. It is, uh, but there's a there's a path. So that's it's, right. It's been a good. That's exactly right. I was in the fitness industry, and now I'm in technology. So it, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> you just kind of roll with what what comes your way. Um, and Thomas is the CEO of Kimray. Uh, like you said, that's been around for over 70 years. He is also an author of Recovering Leadership. It's a musings on being an addicted leader, which is a really unique term. So we're definitely going to dive into more of that. Um, he also hosts a, you and Amy together, right? Host the podcast. Herd, word from the herd. Word from the herd. Word from the herd. I like that. We'll talk about where the herd thing comes from, too. We need to hear more about Bud, Bud the Bison. Um, most people may, I don't, I don't know, a lot of people probably know that you're an Ironman competitor. I did do the Ironman, yes. Yeah, that's a little scary. That was actually a lot of fun. Um, I, I enjoyed that experience and, and all the other experiences I've had along those lines. It, what's scarier is, is, you know, we helped found and put on the Iron Distance Triathlon here in Oklahoma. Uh, for a number of years, and uh, that's uh, it's actually scarier putting the event on for other athletes than just participating. Oh, in I'm it. sure. There's a lot more details than. Yes. Well, I don't know. I think they both would be scary to me. So thank you. <laughs> You're one of the people that think running is fun, right? I used to, and my back won't let me do it yeah. as much anymore. But yes, I actually enjoy running. I know that sounds terrible, but yeah. I had a lot of fun being out on the road. Yeah. Okay. You can be that person. That's okay. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does that. Um, you're also an avid U2 fan. I've heard you talk about U2 a lot. Yes. How many times have you seen them live? A dozen, maybe. Um, 
Yeah, I, I got an opportunity to see you two before they became a big band. And, and when I was in high school, they were here in Oklahoma City. And a friend of mine and I decided we were going to be the, it was at a bar, you know, at a small, small venue. No way. They were doing a bus tour. You know, what year I, was that? I believe it was 81, either late 80 or early 81. And um, so we were the first two people at the at the bar and the owner let us in because he needed help setting up chairs. And when the band showed up, we actually helped unload their equipment and helped them set up and sat around and talked with them. And then I got to be one of the stage uh, kind of guards to keep anybody from getting on stage during the during the performance. And then after the performance, we got to sit around and drink beer and talk to talk to the band. I got to talk to Bono and it was he was like 18 years old. You know, they were there. He's a year older than I am. And oh so it was an amazing experience. And it, and it and I was already a big fan of their music, even though they weren't very well known. And I've followed them ever since. So. Wow, that is crazy. I've heard you talk about you, too, but I've never heard you share that story. Man. So it was it was it was, it was amazing. And it's and it's become more amazing as they've continued to, to refine their message and do the things that they're doing to know kind of have experienced that very early on. They were very, very centered even at that age. I think Bono knew where he was going even when he was 17, 18 years old. So. Did he wear the sunglasses at that point? No, no, he wasn't wearing sunglasses <laughs> back then. He wasn't doing that. So how soon after that did they blow up? Uh, probably in in the next four or five years, over the next four really? or five years. Really? Okay, yeah. gosh, I guess I, I, the 80s just seemed to be all you too. So, uh, have, have you ever seen him at, um, oh, I just blanked the name of it, in Colorado, the Garden of the Gods? Um, no, Red Rocks. Red Rocks. No, I, I didn't get to see him at Red Rocks. Yes, that's yeah. my favorite venue. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's yeah, it beautiful. is. It's that, beautiful is it Gloria? Gloria that they videoed yes. there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, what's your favorite U2 song? That's an impossible question. Oh, come on. Top three. Out of, out of literally hundreds and hundreds of tracks, and, and, and probably more specifically, my favorite tracks are um, versions of the album uh, tracks because they've done lots and lots of, they've recorded lots of live stuff. I got to tell you today, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody's got access to almost everything, but mm -hmm. you know, back before live streaming and iTunes and those kind of things, if you had those tracks on a CD or on a tape, that was a big deal because yeah. most of that you were getting a bootleg or you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. Yeah. And uh, back in the day, I had a lot of, of, you know, kind of bootleg live recording stuff, and um, which kind of made me fall in love with, with seeing them live. They're one of the few bands who is um, as good or better live than they are on, on a studio album. Hmm. And so I would say, um, oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm really, really still very partial to everything on the October album, which is the second album, the first one they released in the United States. So Gloria, yeah. you know, that, that yeah, Rejoice. I, the, the religious overture in those songs, I mean, they're still very religious people and their, their lyrics and their songs are still very laced with, with their belief system and their religion, but the, they were much more overt back then, and I, and I like that. And I also like the rawness of their sound. Um, the Edge has gotten to be one of the best guitarists, obviously, Absolutely. in the universe. But yeah. he was really cool when he was still kind of figuring out who he was, and there mm -hmm. was an edginess to to, to his the guitar, edge. and yeah, <laughs> and, and then and then the vocals. Um, Bono's mellowed a little bit. He used to be a little more raw. They were they were kind of following some of the other British punk bands and. And I like that. I was a punk rocker. So. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. We're learning new things. A punk. I don't see that at all. 
I do not. My see parents that at didn't all. see it either. So. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Well, U2 is my stranded on an island band, mm-hmm. so they would be the ones that I would take with me. So, yeah, that's some good stuff. That's awesome. so cool. What a cool story. I'm glad that you shared that. Um, so, Amy, I'm going to come back to you. I want both of you to give me like a 90-second sh- snapshot of you. Just tell me a little bit more personal things. You told me earlier that your boys are both at Auburn. Is that pretty cool that they're it at is. your alma mater? It is. They they live together, and they have a couple cousins that live a few units down, and they're just living their best life. They okay. really are. Okay. <laughs> How old are they? 20 and 21. Okay. So they're just puppies. Really, they are. They're just getting started. Yeah. Just getting started in the world. So tell us more about you. Well, I grew up on a farm in Alabama. Um, you probably can hear that accent. Yes. And went to Auburn. You, we talked earlier, my degree is in interior architecture. So I did that for a while. Uh, for the last 20 years or so, I've been doing owner's rep work, which is basically working for an owner during construction process and managing the construction process. And that's how I met Kim Ray, was through that. So I was their owner's rep for Cornerstone, which is the large building project where they're consolidating all of their various buildings into one. So we worked on that for about a year and a half. Um, and then right now it's, it's on pause, but we're coming back. Okay. Yeah. Things, things, everything's kind of been on pause. Hasn't everything. It? Everything has been, has on, been pause. on pause for yes. sure. I know. Married. Yes. Okay. My husband is a pilot with Southwest. Oh, that's right. Cause you spend half of your time in Florida and half of your time here. Yes. We, we tend to use those miles a lot. Yeah. I bet you do. So you went to Auburn, but are you, are you rolled rolling tide these days? I don't know where you are in the world listening right now, but. Oh, Tracy. <laughs> is that a bad thing? Some people can both go both. It's the biggest rivalry in the I nation. I know, but, some, but still, between we, that and the, the opponent. The people who can actually do both are a very unique brand, okay. and I am not one of them. <laughs> okay. okay, so you're not even going to root for your state. Okay, that's well, okay. Well, we do root for the SEC, so okay. we, we do have that. Most SEC people do root for the SEC. So okay. in the upcoming game, yes, it's all SEC. Okay, okay. That's okay. You can, I get it. I get it. There's, there's loyal lie deep. It's hard to change those things. I grew up in Boulder. And so when we um, moved to Oklahoma, there was no way I was going to be an OU fan. There was just no way. (laughs) I'm totally happy to be an Oklahoman, but I will never be a Sooner. Uh, The Pokes are my Oklahoma team. So I get it. You're in good company with Thomas. There you go. There you go. Yeah. You just... Those things lie deep. You can't really change some of that stuff. So that's great. So you're a farm girl. I am. So have you cut heads off chickens? Farm as in row crops. Peanuts, soybeans, corn, wheat. Okay. So you did a lot of peaches. Okay. Okay. So you're familiar with the dirt. Very. Okay. Do they still have the farm, your family? Yes. Yes. Family farm. Okay. Do you get to go? As often as we can. Okay. We all go back. My parents live there. They're 82 and 87. Wow. And so, and my brother is now farming there, and my, my parents are retired. But you don't ever really retire from farming. No, you can't. So they pulled back from some of the large acreage and now have a two-acre garden, which keeps them busy. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah, farmers don't get vacations, days off, and retiring. It's never. just unless you pass it down to some and kids, you know. You never really finish on yeah. farm. No, no. So. Sun up, sun down. That's right. exactly right. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, Thomas, give us a 90 second snapshot of you other than you two and you getting to hang with Bono, which is super cool. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I claim I was born to be an engineer. 
Um, uh, fr- I have friends that, that deny the possibility that you're born to be anything, but um, that's, that's how I think. That's how I see the world very uh, systematically. Um, and so that's kind of colored a lot of what I've done in my life. I've always been interested in building and creating and, uh, and, and, and fixing things and solving problems. And that's kind of what led me on my career path and also what caused me a lot of my problems, which we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, married for 30 some odd years. I probably know the exact number, but I'm not going <laughs> to say it. In case, I'm not going to say it in case I'm wrong. And then, you know, then that's like there. And you Sorry, can't Rebecca. That. He really does know. We're just not going to push it. Exactly. When we have, uh, we have six children, um, who are uh, 16 up to 26. We only have one left at home right now, um, which is really kind of nice actually. And Several of them came home over the holidays, and I was delighted to, to see them and have them around, and I was equally delighted for them to go back to school <laughs> and go back to their own houses when it was yeah, time. Yeah. So uh, we're kind of enjoying that that uh, season in life right now. And, and then, of course, uh, I, I'm, I don't know about farmers. We're not a farmer. We're city people. But in my family, you don't retire either. My grandfather was active in Kimray right up until he basically the day he died, and my father, even though he's uh, got MS and has a lot of issues with uh, mobility, it's very hard for him to get around, is still actively involved in the company, the chairman of the board, and, and one of my uh, dearest and, and most important advisors. So um, we don't, our family doesn't retire either. I, I love working. So. Okay, hardworking people. Yeah. There you go. Do you have grandkids? You have one. Okay, so Thomas, tell us about how Kimray started, because we talked about how you all ce- celebrated 70, is it 72 now? 72, yeah, we're, 72? we're in okay. our 72nd year right okay. now. Yes. Okay, okay. So my, my grandfather, Garmin Kimmel, uh, was an engineer for Black Sills and Bryson and made uh, and designed uh, vessels, production vessels. So basically, uh, production vessels are used to separate the various fluids that come out of the ground when we drill a hole and, and produce oil and gas. And so he was very familiar with the production processes. And when he, uh, through some, some situations, Black Sobles and Bryson was bought out and they wanted everybody to move and he didn't want to move. And so he decided to go out on his own. And he had an idea for a controller, a, a pressure controller that would hold the pressure in a vessel much more accurately because those pressures and temperatures are very critical to that process for that separation process to occur. And so he came out with a three-inch piloted back pressure regulator. Now, all the pressure regulators prior to that were either spring or weight loaded, and they would hold uh, a set point as long as the flow rate didn't change. But if the flow rate through the valve changed, then the pressure set point would change. And in the piloted regulator, that in the piloted regulator that doesn't happen. So it became it was a very very accurate controller, and it really changed what the people producing oil and gas could do. Uh, made those vessels much more efficient, allowed them to do a much better job of separation. And so that was really the founding point for Kimray was this idea that there was a better way to do something. If there, w- if there was a better way to do something, we were going to find it and produce those products. We've, we've always been very clear that we don't invent a market for our product. We find a need mm-hmm. that needs to be met, and then we meet that uh, better than everybody else is doing. If somebody else is doing it better than we think we can, we stay out, we, we stay out of it. And so over the years, Garmin invented a number of other products. My father got involved in the company, uh, and he d- did quite a few uh, development of a lot of the products. And, and then I got involved. And quite frankly, I wanted to be an engineer, and I wanted to be part of Kimray from the time I was in kindergarten or first grade. Actually, 
in kindergarten, I wanted to be a fireman because they brought the fire truck to kindergarten yes. and everybody got to get up and, you know, yes. and everybody wanted to be a fireman. But yeah, of course. first grade on, I wanted to be an engineer. If you ask me, I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to run camera. I didn't even know what that meant in first grade. <laughs> and so unfortunately, I got that that wish. We, we can talk more about that. But um, that's that's really the start of Kimmery. And we've been in Oklahoma City. Uh, Garmin started and rented property in what then was Britain, Oklahoma, at basically the intersection of Britain and Western. Mm. And in 1951, he bought what we refer to as Building One, which is 52 Northwest 42nd, right off of Santa Fe. And then over the years, expanded and added, and we bought up buildings. And now we have about 22 acres, 16 different buildings, about 325,000 square feet of manufacturing space. And, uh, and of course, we were headed towards consolidating all that into one when the economy kind of changed our plans. But we'll get we'll get back to that at yeah. some point in our yeah. lives. It's all timing, right? Yes, it's absolutely. All timing. absolutely. Uh, COVID changed a lot of things. So you always knew that you wanted to do that from kindergarten. How did you understand what an engineer was in kindergarten? I did because both my I, actually when I was in kindergarten and first grade, we were in Stillwater. My dad was going to engineering school and he would take us with him, my brother and I. Uh, he would take us with him uh, to the student union while he studied and worked problems. And I got to go to the engineering fair and I got to go up to the engineering labs. So I doubt I knew everything, obviously, that was going on. But I saw what they were doing and the th- kind of things they were working on. And I was fascinated by that. And then that's my whole family. Garmin was that way. In our household, if something broke, we took it apart, figured out what broke made a better piece, manufactured it, machined it, whatever, and put it back together, and it was better than, than when we bought it. And I thought everybody did that. I mean, I thought that's how the world worked. It turns out that's not, that's what, not, not what most people do, but that's what we did. So, yes. yeah, I've, I always wanted to do that. Yeah, I love how you tell those stories in your book. and That makes it very personable. And, and Garmin just sounded so cool. Garmin uh, was amazing. Yes. So you mentioned in your book that he – dug a basement under a house. That just blew my mind. I didn't even know that that was possible to do that. Yeah, he did. He, uh, he crawled under the house and started digging. And eventually he made a, he made actually made like a little mine car on rails that came out through the, you know, the access that you have to a house that has a crawl space and shovel by shovel, bucket by bucket, he removed the dirt and built a basement underneath his house where they stored things in his uh, dark room was in the basement, and I spent many, many nights with him in that dark room developing film and printing pictures and another wonderful part of my childhood and young adulthood. So. Digging out that basement sounds to me like that Steve McQueen movie, The Great Escape, that they're wheeling yes. out. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't there when it happened. Obviously, I hadn't uh, even been born yet, but um, that's the picture I get when I think yeah. of Garmin going through that yes. opening. because He lived in that house, and I grew up you know, being taken care of in that house, and and I, you can see the opening. It's right on the back of the house right there. And that's where everything came and went to put that basement. And I thought, that's amazing. He also built a central air conditioning system before they were a thing. He did. He did. Before you could buy, commercially buy central air conditioning for a home, um, Garmin uh, built his own, um, had a water tower for the heat exchange in the attic of his house. And uh, that system ran until he moved out of the house. I don't know what the people who bought the house did with it, but um, one of the one of the things I got to do is go up in that attic with my dad at the beginning of the season and clean out that water tower and get it ready uh, for water to circulate through that water tower and and do the exchange with the ammonia that was being used in the in the system. So that's crazy. I mean, I wouldn't ever think of I'm going to put a tank of water in my attic. Because I, I just think something's going to break. It's going to leak everywhere. But 
clearly Garmin had a vision that I was. I don't remember blow. there ever being a water leak. That was never never a problem. But, wow, so. that's impressive. Yeah, that's definitely you had a vision because your family had a vision and they were able to do things that that thought outside of the box. Well, Tracy, I think it I think it's really important as a community that we recognize that the things that we see other people do impact what we believe we'll be capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is is really critical in our communities today is that there are lots and lots of kids who are not seeing people be successful at solving problems, mm-hmm. at managing their life, at becoming what they might want to be. And if you don't see it, then it's a rare person who can imagine something for themselves that is just that is completely unknown. Most of us follow something that, that we have seen or something that has been demonstrated to us. And so one of the things that really concerns me is, is as a society, we have done a really poor job of providing opportunity for people to be exposed to things that would cause them to want to become something. Mm-hmm. And especially when we talk about inner city schools and, and people that are, are growing up in poverty, it's no fault of the children that they're not seeing. I mean, I grew up around men who, if they wanted to fix something, they fixed it. If they wanted to build something, they built it. It never occurred to me that I couldn't do anything that I wanted to do Hmm. because I had all these people around me who were successfully doing that. Hmm. If I had not grown up that way, then who knows what I would have become or who I would be, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that had to have an enormous impact on on who I am. So that's something that I think we really need to be concerned about as a society. Yeah, well, we'll talk more about how you guys get involved in your community a little bit because I know that you do give back a lot. Um, I know specifically some inner city programs that you guys are a part of. So I want to talk about that. So Miss Amy, so I've asked several people about you. And when I was asking about you, you were described as a visionary, um, as a builder, as someone who can make things way more beautiful than they started out as. And I was also told that before you started your role at Kimray, that you were telling people you wanted to work at Kimray because you you loved the company. What was it about Kimray that drew you in? I'm going to say Kimray about three more times because I keep saying Kimray. So go ahead. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Kimray is a wonderful company. And we talked just a second ago about my role as an owner's rep. And so as an owner's rep, you move from company to company through the construction projects, and you're working very closely with the management of a company. So it's very easy to see their own personal ideals and goals and how that translates into their management. And when you've done that for a number of years and you see just how companies are run, um, the goods and the bad, because I'm there as a contract employee, they're not trying to impress me. And so I see really what happens every day. And I've seen a lot of companies. And when I got to Kimray, there was a marked difference. Mm-hmm. And it's, it became very apparent in the way they treat their people, in the way they treat each other, in the way the executive team interacted among themselves and with other people in the organization and with those of us who came in to work on this particular project. It was, they valued us and it was very evident and that's unusual. And so I said, this is a company that I would certainly like to be a part of. So yes, I did say that. Okay. So when you see behind the curtain, it's not always pretty. That is very true. (laughs) But this look behind the curtain was a very good, it was very, very good. Um, And nothing has changed. I 
had a meeting prior to starting officially with the Kimmel Foundation, I had several focus group meetings with various people from Kimray, and they were pulled randomly from all different areas and levels. And to, I asked for feedback. And so I, in that day, I probably talked with 60 people. And the feedback that they gave and was very, very clarifying and just reinforced all the ideas that I had on the way Kim Ray values people. And that's the foundation for the Kimmel Foundation is valuing people. And it's played out in what Kim Ray does daily um, and in the way their people treat each other. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely one thing to hear from leadership, but then when you talk to everybody else, you're going to get the real story. And if it's the same story, then it's legit. Absolutely. Okay. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Um, So Thomas, I read your book over, um, I had a break in December and I I really enjoyed it. I highlighted quite a bit of things in there. Um, Thank you. But your book is titled Recovering Leadership, which is an unusual, uh, an unusual top, uh, unusual title, especially when you're talking about addiction. Um, one of the things and one of the quotes that I highlighted that I think people can relate to is one, um, I think it was later in the book, said, you said you, you grew up believing that personal value and worth were based on accomplishments. In other words, I was worth what I did. This would be fine if I was capable of only doing great and worthy things, but that is never going to be true about any human being. And I feel like everybody in the world can relate to that yeah, statement because we all want to feel like we're bringing value in the world. And But I've heard it referred to as the performance treadmill. You mm-hmm. know, as long yes. as you're doing good and you can stay on that treadmill, then you feel value. You Other people think you have value. But as soon as you turn up the speed and fall on your face or step off the treadmill, yeah. everything changes. So what did it, what does, how does one recover from such an addiction and, and how did you get there? Yeah. So I, I think it's important uh, for the people that are listening that, that, that we make clear that there are addictive behaviors that we can identify in people. Um, even people who don't have an identifiable addiction per se, like somebody doesn't have to be an alcoholic or a drug addict um, or even or even an identifiable process addict. Um, and, and I am a process addict uh, to, to behave like an addict. I, I talk to lots of leaders. I get to experience a lot of different leaders. And um, across the board, I run into far more high level leaders who behave like addicts uh, than, than people who don't. And when I say behave like addicts, if you think about what an addict does, an addict has has selected a uh, substance or a behavior, and they're using that substance or behavior to mask or cover up things that are problematic for them, pain or or whatever. And so uh, you don't have to drink to overcome pain. You can throw yourself into your work or you can be uh, mean to people or you can. I mean, there's all different kinds of things that people do. But addiction is, by definition, a horrifically selfish way to live. It's all about me. So when I'm behaving like an addict, what I'm doing is I'm attempting to make the rest of the world, um, to mold the world around me into what I need it to be so that I feel the way I want to feel. I'm, I'm trying to control my circumstances and control people and manipulate the environment to make me feel better. And I'm trying to make myself feel better when I'm not healthy, right? So I'm... I'm 
covering things or compensating for things. And so that's going to be problematic for everybody around me. That's going to be an unhealthy environment for all the people around me. I find lots of leaders that are doing that at various levels. They're not all horrific people. Some of them are good people, but they're still attempting to control their environment in ways that are just not realistic. So recovery from addiction is always the same. It doesn't matter what your addiction is. The path to recovery is always the same. It begins with an acknowledgement that we have a problem. And it begins with an acknowledgement that I'm not healthy, I'm not well, and that the things that I'm doing are not healthy for me or the people around me. And then a willingness to surrender that need to control my environment, which then brings with it uh, the reality that I have to face the things that I haven't been facing. I have to, to deal with the stuff that I've been trying to cover up for or overcome or mask or drowned out. And that's where all those behaviors come from. But the interesting thing is all that does is get you clean or dry or you know, not gambling or not you know, whatever it is you're doing. To really recover, you have to move past that. And the 12th step in the 12-step program is, it says, and I'm sorry, I get emotional about this. I don't That's know okay. why. That's good. It says, having had this spiritual awakening, we take this message to other people who are suffering. So if I'm not participating in sharing my story, not for my glory, but because when other people hear me say, whether I'm in a 12-step meeting or I'm just talking to somebody or I'm speaking to 5,000 people, when I honestly and transparently talk about who I am and the things that I did and, and the problems that I have, it gives other people in the room or in that conversation permission to look at themselves. It opens the door for them to go, oh, I see myself there. Maybe I've got a problem. And, and that's the beginning for them. That can be the, the first step for them when they begin to recognize that they've got an issue. So that's really where we get into recovery. As leaders, we need to acknowledge that our behavior more impacts people more than other people's behavior do. We have a, a greater amount of influence. The communities that we lead, uh, their cultures are an organic result of the belief system in that organization. And that belief system is predominantly governed by us as the leader. What we believe becomes the, the organization's belief system. So we're responsible for the, for the community that these people are living and working and responsible for the things that they're experiencing. When we're unhealthy, then we're putting them in a position where they're experiencing an unhealthy culture. When we become healthy, then we have the blessing of being able to put them in a culture where they're actually experiencing health and have an opportunity to live their best lives. And if you talk to me very long, you'll hear me say, we can't live our own, we can't live our best lives unless the people around us are living theirs. And as leaders, we have a huge responsibility to, to do something about that. Mm -hmm. that oh, that's, I don't know if that answered your question. No, that's fantastic. And it's, I think that that most people would call that regular life <laughs> being addicted to, uh, to leading, to being addicted to performing. I mean, that's what, I think of Wall Street, you know, I mean, that's yes. just every day you succeed, succeed or you fail, you succeed or you fail. And, and how do you feel when you go home on those days? You know, well, and Tracy, the, the society around us, most of the signals we get from society tell us that we are worth what we wear, what we do, what kind of car we drive, how we smell, what we look like. And, and so we're getting those signals from everywhere. It's not a surprise that a lot of people think that they are worth what they have accomplished or, or what 
click they're in or what, you know, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things. That's why we buy fancy cars. That's why we do a lot of the things we do. But for some number of people, that then becomes debilitating. Um, I, you know, I was to the point where, uh, and, and it's interesting because our, our society also pats us on the back. If, if you're addicted to performance, um, that you're going to get praised for that, right? Very early in my life, I accomplished things and I was very good at getting things done. I got patted on the back for that and that made it worse, right? Because then I felt valued. And so I said, oh, if that's how you get to feel valued, then I'm going to do more. I'm going to do more. And you mentioned the treadmill. I use that illustration a lot. Everybody has seen a YouTube video of somebody doing something stupid on a treadmill. (laughs) They fall off and inevitably they've put the treadmill behind the treadmill as a glass table or a wall or a sliding glass door. I don't know why the manufacturer will tell you shouldn't do that, but it wouldn't be a good video if they didn't. And they end up smack, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's literally what happened in my life. That treadmill, I just had to go faster and faster and faster because I got to the point where I didn't even complete what I was in the middle of doing before I started panicking that I wasn't doing enough to be worth anything. And I started working on the next thing. I never, I didn't even enjoy the stuff that I did. I didn't enjoy the accomplishments. Um, and quite honestly, running was one of those problems. I started running. The next thing I needed to run a marathon, then I had to run an ultra marathon, then I had to run 100 miles. And it wasn't enough to run them. I had to put on those events. And I enjoyed running, but I was never able to just be my therapist says I was a human doing, not a human being. I had to learn to be instead of always having to be doing. And eventually the treadmill for everybody is going so fast that you can't stay up. And then you do that that YouTube video we've all seen. Unfortunately, instead of just a glass table, it was my family and my company and my life and the people around me. That's what smashed into pieces and crashed everywhere. That's what and that's the unfortunate reality of addiction of any kind. Mm-hmm. But how was that situation redeemed? Because for a while you left. I did. You left for a while. Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. My family fired me <laughs> from my family's company. I was the president of Kim Ray and they fired me, took me off the board and I went to rehab for 67 days. And then I came back thinking I would never actually go back to Kim Ray. I thought that was not going to ever be possible. Um, and so I went about uh, figuring out what life was going to look like for me to be healthy. And in the process of doing that, I got the attention of the board. I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying to. They called me and said, hey, we'd like to sit down and talk. And we started talking about me coming back. And uh, I got the opportunity to come back into Kim Ray as a junior executive in a role I had had 15 years before working for a guy I hired when I was the president. It's humbling. Um, it is a little humbling, but it was actually great. And it gave me an opportunity to kind of see if I was going to be okay in the environment. And then over a couple of years, um, as things changed, they eventually uh, promoted me to CEO and my father decided to step down again. And it's been wonderful because um, I would have been fine not being at Kim Ray. I had, I had dealt with that in therapy and, and it put that to rest. Uh, but it has given me an opportunity to do that 12-step thing at a scale that not everybody gets the opportunity to do that. And that's really kind of why I go to work every day. Um, I, I know we're, we're going to talk more about Kim Ray, but um, at Kim Ray, we, we, making valves is what we do to accomplish why we exist. Mm-hmm. And Kim Ray exists to make a difference in the lives of the people that we serve, whether that's our own employees or the community. We happen to do that by generating cash and resources by making vows. But quite frankly, Tracy, we can make anything. We can do anything. And we're actually working on figuring out what we're going to do as the world transitions away from hydrocarbons. I, I don't intend Camry to last another 10 years. 
I intend for them to last another hundred years. Mm. As long as there are people uh, that we can impact, then there's a reason for Kimray to exist. It doesn't make any difference what products we make. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to me, and it's become very important to, to our people. Our people know when they go to work every day, it's not so that it can get more valves out the door. If all they were doing was building valves, that's not very motivational. Hmm. But they know that when they build valves and they do it efficiently and we do it right and we, and we make a great product, that the people's lives are impacted. Hmm. Not necessarily because of the valves. And they're great products and I love our product. But yeah. because we take our profits and our platform and our resources and our opportunities and we use those things to impact people's lives. Yeah. It reminds me of the story when they, uh, I don't even remember which space shuttle or what exactly, the if it was an Apollo system or what, but they were asking different people what they do. And one guy said, I, I work on the cooling system and, or I work on the health side for the astronauts. And one man said, I build, I build the space, I'm building a spaceship. You know, he had vision. He had picture right. for the whole thing. And that's when you when when people are what's important, that filters down from the leaders to the other people so that they can live that, they can believe that. That but that's a hard thing to do. So how, how, if someone is listening to us right now and they're a workaholic, which is like we said, we live in America, that's totally perfectly acceptable. But they need to step off that treadmill. What do you what would you say? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um Different people's path to finding health um, are as varied as the people themselves. Um, some of us um, have to wreck the car. You know, we have to destroy everything <laughs> and then kind of, if we're lucky and it doesn't kill us. And unfortunately, in, in addiction, a lot of people um, don't recover. They, they find death instead of, mm -hmm. instead of recovery, and, and that's tragic. Um, but some of us just have to wreck everything. Some people are able to... Um, to see in, in, in someone else or in another story themselves and go, oh, I don't want to end up like that and, and, and make a correction. At, at the end of the day, though, it, it comes back to are you willing and capable to surrender? Uh, recovery is about surrender. And, you know, if you're in, in a 12-step program, they're going to talk about higher powers. And, I, you know, it doesn't really make any difference to me what your belief system is in terms of your theology. Um, you have to be able to acknowledge that you're just not in control of the vast majority of the things that are going on around you. You have very little that you actually have control over, mostly just yourself and your own responses to people. And that so many things are indeterminate for you, that so many things could happen tomorrow that would change everything. COVID has taught us uh, in, a, in a kind of a national way how, how real that can be. And so if that's the case, then all of this effort that we're putting into controlling our environment is really kind of silly and is making us unhealthy. So we have to... However you get there, whether it's by horrific tragedy or just kind of waking up one morning and going, hey, I'm not happy with my life, um, the surrendering, that surrender that happens in, in recovery, I think, is, is the key first step. And then this is what I do every day. So recovery isn't like this moment in time that I recovered and now I'm, I'm going to be okay. Recovery is, a lot, is how I live. Every day I ask myself the question, Tracy, what is my job? What is mine to do today? And quite frankly, it's not much. There's not much that, that's mine. I, I don't control very much at all. And so I focus on doing what I'm supposed to do, and I let other people do what they're supposed to do, including the people that work for me, the people I work with and around. And then ultimately, I let God do his job. You know, at, at the end of the day, um, I'm not responsible for the outcome. I'm responsible for my effort. Hmm. And if, if I can keep remembering that, 
that I stay focused on the right things. And, and interestingly enough, you can still be very successful doing that. Kimray is a very successful company. Um, we're, we're doing great even through this downturn. We've, we've managed very well. Uh, so it's not about measured success. It's not, you know, it's not about profit or you can be profitable. You can be very successful. You can be very creative. It's about an internal mindset of what am I actually in control over and mm. realizing actually not much. It's not much <laughs> at all. Yes. I, I came to that realization um, becoming a mother. I had all these grand visions that my children were going to listen and um, you know, follow instructions. And my oldest in particular uh, gave me a huge run for my money. <laughs> and my, uh, my friends say that one of my things that I say a lot is control is an illusion. It's it an is. illusion. These little people are not robots and I can't push the button. I wish they had a mute button very often, <laughs> but they don't have mute buttons. But it is, it's an illusion. And we just burn ourselves out yeah. trying to control things that are completely out of our control. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for your vulnerability. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, it's a hard thing to share when your life falls apart and you've done it very publicly. So thank you for doing that. No, you're welcome. I thank appreciate you. it. So Amy, you, um, I heard you share on a podcast about, um, having life goals. And Thomas was talking about that, how at kindergarten he knew what he wanted to be. I don't think I had any goals in kindergarten. I don't know, to sit next to my friend. Probably that was about it. Um, what's the Socrates quote? Um, if a man doesn't know what port he's going to, no wind is favorable, right? So I heard you talking about how you need to have goals, but you also need to write them down and have attainable steps to do that. How do you make that happen? What does that look like for you? Well, the reason that we write them down is because psychologists tell us that we are 42% more likely to accomplish them if they're written down. And the real reason that I think it's important to write them down, two things. One, it helps us to remember because it's easy to say, I plan to do this, I want to do this, and, and life happens. <laughs> so we write these down, we put them where we can see them. It helps us to remember. But the other thing is, it causes us to use our imagination. Hmm. And that's the biggest tool we have because we don't get anywhere unless we visualize it. Hmm. And so even with the creation of the foundation, you know, it was, it was a vision that the world can be a better place if we value the people around us. And then how do we actually accomplish that valuing becomes part of our part of our list of things that we want to do and our goals to accomplish. And the way we do it is we try to make um, our ideas portable. We come up with various initiatives that people can participate in and see what they're doing. But back to your initial question about why do we write them down? We write them down so that we remember them and so that we know exactly what we're doing because things get lost. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah, they do. You put it down on paper and you're like, okay, that's a big thing. And then, but then you can it just is. take little bite-sized pieces. Sometimes you have to see it, right? So just writing it down can just be the simple thing of, you do. okay, I'm a visual person. If I right. see something, it, it's more real to me or right. I'm more able to do it. I remember I had a math teacher that had a thing over his desk and he would say, Tracy, and he would point at the sign and says, I, I hear and I don't 
understand I mm-hmm. something I don't know I see and I learn I do I don't know it was a saying but it was right. all about seeing it and doing it and putting into action right so, there, yeah. there's a study um, from the United Kingdom where they were it was about children and they said children are more likely to obey instructions if they're written down which is a little unusual because you would think that you could just tell your kids what to do <laughs> but it's that power of having it in a written format that works for kids as well as adults yeah like so. a short chart so we need a, an adult short chart we do and that's pretty much what we have i do it every week i write my to-do list which is really a chore chart that's hilarious do we get stickers we need stickers we definitely need stickers hello hey thank you for listening in on another episode of conversations around good my name is hetty i'm a team member here at made possible by and we wanted to take a moment to share a little bit about what made possible by does we make giving easy for community-minded businesses and we provide a more effective way to share their stories of good small to mid-sized businesses don't have the resources that large corporations do to hire staff to process their sponsorship and donation requests or a marketing team to share how they choose to invest in their communities. Made Possible By provides an easy to use time-saving solution to help a company process their request and we help companies better connect with their customers and community by providing a permanent location to share their stories of good. We believe that you don't have to be a big business to make a big difference. We would love for you to reach out to us today at madepossibleby.us or email our team member Tracy at Tracy at madepossibleby.us. We truly want to help you make your good loud. Now, back to the episode. So let's talk about the Kimmel Foundation, Amy. Um, I was reading on the website that the Kimmel Foundation's vision is a world where people know they are valued, where their lives are improved daily in the workplace, where organizations thrive through empowered employees, and where people awaken to the significance of valuing, valuing each other and practice this principle in their affairs. That's a huge Twinkie. To it, go with the Ghostbusters route. That's a big Twinkie. It is. And that is that is an imaginative piece. That's a vision. And that's what a vision should be. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be something that you can accomplish this year. That's yeah. a lifetime goal yeah. is to help people become more aware of the importance of valuing people. And we have a lifetime of work to do yeah, that. For sure. Mm-hmm. So how did the foundation start and and and? Goodness, talking about baby steps, how do you make that vision happen on a daily basis? Well, the foundation started. Thomas can tell you his personal uh, vision with the foundation. I can tell you that you were just talking about everybody has a a way that they value themselves, whether it's through their accomplishments or, or their the way they look or however that goes. A lot of people also value themselves by the amount of money that they have. And when it comes to corporations, that's incredibly important. What the foundation was based on is that there are things way more important than money and power Mm. and prestige. Mm. And that success in a company, although externally it looks extremely, extremely successful, if you have all of those things, that that's not real success. Real success is something that lasts much longer and that's the way you treat the people that's part of your organization. And it's how you impact their lives. And so 
to get away from the trappings, as we like to say, of success and get down to what really matters every single day. That's why the foundation was started, to, so that Kim Ray could, they, the, as you just said, um, Thomas just said, the goal of Kim Ray, the vision of Kim Ray, the mission of Kim Ray is to make a difference in the lives of those we serve. And one of the ways um, to make a difference is to take that beyond just the boundaries of the people who work at Kim Ray. And so the foundation was started to do that, to export that idea to other companies. And other companies are, some of them are doing this extremely well, and some of them could so desperately use um, some additional ideas and some help in that way. And that's why we're here. And we're starting several initiatives to be able to do this. One of them is working with leaders in an intensive on just what what does leadership look like and what is your identity as a leader because it all starts with the leader. And then we're also doing a mentoring program where we're connecting established leaders with emerging leaders so that we can start to export these ideas of valuing people and that it's so much more important than the everyday accomplishments, which are great, but if you do that without the human portion, then it's not really worthwhile. At the end of the day, it's pretty empty. And that's what the Kimmel Foundation, that's our goal, is to to live in that space, the space that's outside of what it looks like just to have money and a thriving company, but that the thriving is really based on the way people are treated within that company. And and you know you have it when people don't want to leave. Yeah, that's for sure. And that's I've been amazed at uh, Kimmery's events and people have been there 50 years. Like That blows my mind. That blows my mind. So I love the idea of training leaders of other companies to value their people because then Kimmery isn't the only company out here that's caring about other people. Exactly. You know, I mean, to teach other businesses how to do that, that's really cool. And, and you know, likewise, other companies have things to teach, um, but, but nobody seems to be in this space right now. And so we want, to, we want to lead with this and pull people together for this. Okay, that's cool. Thank you. I'm glad that you're heading that up. So is that, Thomas, in the book you say several times, that's the Kim Ray way. That's the Kim Ray way. Yeah. So yeah. would that be the Kim Ray way? I mean, pretty much. I mean, I, I, what, how would you define the Kim Ray way? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've been working on defining the Kim Ray way. I, I write a musing every Monday. Um, that began as just a communication from me to my executive team. So they would understand what I was thinking um, about. Uh, I have, uh, my brain does some weird things. I connect things <laughs> together that not everybody connects together sometimes. And I realized that it was difficult for them to follow how I was coming up with the things that I wanted them to be doing and the way I wanted them to lead. And so we started having those conversations. Um, and and now, you know, so a few hundred of those musings later, I'm, I'm still saying, and that's the Kimray way, and every one of them is kind of unique. So it'd be difficult to define the whole thing. But but in a nutshell, um, our underlying belief system is, is that every single human being is intrinsically and equally valuable. That by intrinsic, we mean that, that it's part of their, of their being. It's not because they're educated or, you know, it's not anything they've done or how old they are, or their experiences or anything that any, they can't add or subtract to that at all. All of those things do 
come into play when they're participating in a community. We want a diverse community where people have different experiences and different backgrounds and different viewpoints because that helps us see things from a lot of different angles and we get better solutions and better creative thought. But it doesn't change how much how valuable they are. So they're intrinsically valuable and then equally valuable. Everybody is equally valuable. And so at Kimray, I'm not more valuable than, than the person who sweeps the floors. We have different jobs. We have different responsibilities. We may have different skill sets and different backgrounds and things like that. But as human beings, we're equally valuable. And therefore, we should be equally respected. And I think one of the things that we can see very clearly missing in our society today is uh, people valuing each other. And when we don't value each other, then we tend to group up. We find people who look and sound and act like we do. Mm-hmm. And then we make a group out of that those people. And then we look around us and we devalue the people around us. We make them less than we are. And we may not come out and say that in so many words. As I Before I uh, got into recovery, I would never have said out loud that I thought somebody was less valuable than I was. But I certainly acted that way. I certainly you know, believed that. If nothing else, simply because I believed that my value was based on my performance, my accomplishments. Do you think I thought anybody accomplished more than I did? Of course not. I worked harder than anybody at Camry. I don't sleep. You know, I, I have a long litany of things I could point to that I've done. And so when I looked at somebody who swept floors for a living, there's no way I could have thought I would have believed that they were as valuable as me, regardless of what I would have said out loud. And what we believe impacts how we act. We can't get away from it. We cannot change that. And so the Kimry way is when we live out that underlying belief. It's the Kimry way is in every single detail of our lives, corporate and personal, if we're behaving and acting and communicating that we intrinsically and equally value everyone around us. It's really kind of the, the whole thing when the, the, the leader, the leader and teacher of the law asked Jesus, you know, what was the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus said, well, love God with everything, right? Your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said, but the second is equal to it, and that's love other people as, you, as much as you love yourself, right? That's a statement of equality, by the way, right? That yeah. says uh, love others, that's everybody else, the same as you love yourself. In other words, we're all equal in, in terms of, of how we're supposed to be treated, respected, cared for. And so the Kimray way is when we as a community are doing that, putting feet to that in everything that we do, not just by writing things up on the wall, not just in major initiatives, not just one day a year when we have some stupid event or something. It's everything we say, everything we do, every policy, every decision goes through the first filter of does this communicate intrinsic and equal value for the people in our community or doesn't it? And if it doesn't, then we need to do something different. And so that's we talk about that a lot, um, quite frankly. We spend a lot of time communicating on that. Well, that's good because the bottom line is people are important, yes. all people. And our world needs that. Our country needs that um, because that's certainly not what you see when you turn on the news. You know, it's not what you hear out in the world. Um, most workplaces, you know, I mean, you just – it's all about performance. Yes. And we all come in with our own little belief systems about things, and that very often can divide us. And, you know, it's interesting. At Kimry, we have people from all different walks of life, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different experience sets, and certainly different faiths. Um, a lot of people will refer to Kimry as a Christian company. I tell them that's not true. Kimry is not a Christian company because a company can't be a Christian that's a personal <laughs> faith. That's yeah. a personal belief system. Yeah. 
we do unashamedly operate the company according to the ethics and, and moral principles that we find in the Bible, um, and, and we're not we're not ashamed of that. It works out very well for everybody that's part of part of Kimray. But we have lots of people at Kimray that aren't Christians. The only thing you have to be to participate in the community at Kimray is you have to be willing to believe. You have to to believe like we believe that everybody is equally and intrinsically valuable. You don't have to be perfect at it, right? We're all human beings. We make mistakes. We do things that are devaluing to other people, Mm -hmm. either on accident or because we're angry or hurt or upset or whatever. You can make mistakes, but that can't be your mode of living. Um, and that's really all it takes to be, be part of our community. And mm-hmm. I haven't found anybody in any faith system that isn't willing to make that statement. Uh, well, I mean, there are people, but it's not because of the faith system. Every faith system acknowledges that. So um, it's really, as far as I can tell, a very unifying unifying concept. Tracy, you said something I think is really important. You said people need to be cared for. People mm-hmm. need to be cared about. And, and you asked earlier or made the statement earlier about Bud, our 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 little bison guy. And the reason Bud is our mascot for the foundation is we were, I, I like bison, by the way. I, I think bison are cool. Um, and I, I want to have some bison. In fact, we're probably going to try to get some bison out on our property here before too long. And when I tell people I want bison, they go, oh, you don't you know bison are difficult, right? They're very hard to keep in pens, which is true. A full grown bison weighs about 2000 pounds. They can jump a six-foot fence yes, from a I've standing seen yes. position. I've seen they it. can run 40 miles an hour. So yeah. if you get in a pen with a bison and you think you're far enough away, you're mistaken. And they can be a little aggressive. But here's the thing. Bison are not migratory, and they're not necessarily difficult to contain, but they do need to have their needs met. And here's what a bison needs. A bison needs to have their basic needs met. They need food and water, right? The things that they need to just to, to maintain their, their survival. And so if there isn't enough food or there isn't enough water, they'll move. When, when we you know, started moving west across America and we saw these great herds of bison, they weren't migrating. They were just moving to new pastures. That, that's what they do. They need to feel safe. Um, if, they, if they're being threatened or think that there's a threat in the area, they'll move. They'll, they'll change, change areas. And then they need community. You cannot pin a single bison. They will leave. They'll go look for other bison. And so... That they need those three things. Their basic needs met, they need to feel safe, and they need community. Started thinking, Tracy, that's what we need. That's mm-hmm. Bison are not a whole lot different than people in that respect, right? We need our basic needs met. So if you're a, a leader of a company and you want your people to be healthy and to, to want to stay in your community, you need to meet their basic needs. And I don't want to go down the rabbit trail of, of living wage and all that kind of But you've got to pay people uh, at a rate that they can live their lives and have homes and have families and things like that, or, or you're going to have a problem, right? So we need to meet their basic needs. They need to feel safe. And we've often pitched safety in terms like physical safety. You know, uh, we're a manufacturer. OSHA is one of our, you know, loved friends and they come in and, and check us out all the time. We, we welcome that. We want to run, we want everybody to go home with all their fingers and toes and nothing stuck in their eye or anything. That's good. But people need to be emotionally and mentally safe too. And there are lots of environments where millions of dollars are being spent to keep people from cutting their hands off, but they go home with their hearts cut open every day, or they go home mentally unhealthy every day. So we need to make people safe in that way. And then we need community. We're made to be together. We're made to be you know, in groups and, and spend time together. And so what the foundation hopes to do is provide that community or that herd, you know, that's where the word herd came from, mm-hmm. to provide that herd for other leaders 
so that they have a place where they can get with leaders who are like-minded and share ideas, feel safe, get some of their needs met, because it's a little lonely at the top of an organization. You can't just spill your guts to anybody you want to. You know, you can't vent about everything that's going on. You can't always ask every question that you think you might want to ask of just anybody that's around. So, so the foundation is going to be a place of safety, a place of caring, a place of, of creating ideas for, for people so that then those leaders can go out and create those communities where their people can be taken care of and be safe and, and be cared for. And I think that's a that might be a great place, great way to live, a great place to be. That the camera way, I yeah. love that. So, did COVID slow those things down? Did when did the foundation start? Yeah, we started in November of last year, you know, okay. a year ago, yeah. this past November. Yeah, okay. And we were just ramping up when COVID shut everything out. Yeah. I, I think that would be. I'd let Amy talk a little bit about the challenges that we've had to face, um, because it's really been up to her to to pivot on that. And uh, she's done a great job, but I'll let her, let, let's let her tell her story about that. Pivots. Pivots are not always fun, but sometimes no. they're necessary. And COVID made us do a lot of pivoting. That's true. We were turning in circles for a while there. We were sitting and spinning. <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> and so what's happened with us is we're new. You know, this is the first year. I mean, we're just finishing up our first year as an organization. And within that first year, your goal is to get out and get your name known and to have a lot of name recognition. And we had grand plans to do that. We had a conference planned for fall of 2020. It's called Recon 2020, Recovering Leadership Conference 2020. And, and it, was, it was going to be fantastic. And then it wasn't because no one can meet. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of other things where we were pulling people together because the best way, you know, is to pull people into community. Because one thing that we have found over this whole COVID experience is we've been able to stay connected with Zoom calls and everything online. And although we can transmit knowledge and information, we can't recreate experience online. And that's part of what the foundation does, is create an experience where you feel that you're in this community and you want to take this back with you. It's been a huge challenge. What we did during our first year is we said, okay, we can't pull people to us. Let's take our message to as many people as possible. So we also have a podcast and what we do is we focus on seven ways that companies and leaders can show value to the people around them. Um, and then we're also working, like I mentioned just a minute ago, on other initiatives where we can pull leaders together as soon as we are able to gather. Uh, we have these things ready to go. Also, the whole idea of doing the mentoring, because that's something that perhaps we can do some of that remotely. And we are really, our, our goal is to not let COVID define anything about us and not just do something to get by. We want to create everything that we're doing. We're not just saying, hey, let's just do this instead. It's let's create something new that has its own energy and that can become something wonderful. So although COVID has changed what we were doing, I don't think it has harmed how we present, we've just changed it. And we'll get back to recon, we will have that. Um, but in the meantime, we're still getting our message out and doing what we can for awareness and name recognition. And it's not for the purpose of 
you know, this is a nonprofit. And so this, our goal is to help other people. It is definitely not to build ourselves. So everything that we can do to help people is what we are focused on. Great. Well, my, I was going to ask you about community, what community looks like for you right. all. And that's a really broad picture for Kim, right, for the Kimmel Foundation for all of it, because it's all people, which is great. That's what we need, right? It is. And, and my definition of community is a lot more of a, your community and my community is the people that we have the opportunity to influence. And the bigger your footprint, the bigger your community and so, and this is not just people we see or people we know, but it's people who may be influenced by, for you, you have a very large community with this podcast mm-hmm. because you're touching people and have the potential to touch thousands of people with mm-hmm. this, um, doing good. Mm-hmm. And so many people have large, large communities and it's a large responsibility. I mean, the yes. bigger your community, the bigger your responsibility. And, and that's something that we, we strive to be very aware of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I love that it's all people having value. All people doesn't matter where you are, what your skin color is, if you sweep the floor, if you have a college education. Yes. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter, and that's needed. It that's is. very much needed in the world. Um, Thomas, you were talking about your um, word from the herd, your blog. Um, I love that you quote movies, the Holy Grail, the <laughs> Fight Club, Bobby Brown lyrics, uh, even the Hallmark Channel. You get you got some points there with your wife that you talking about the Hallmark Channel. Um, you've talked about boundaries, about knowing yourselves, yourself, yourself. About In my case, it may be myself. Yourselves, I don't know. <laughs> your multiple selves, whatever. Um, about possessions owning us instead of us owning them. Um, about seeing possibilities in difficult circumstances, which pretty much sums up 2020. So blogging is difficult and it's time consuming. And you said it started with just communicating to your leadership team, but it has grown into something bigger. So where do you find your content, your inspiration? Is that just part of your engineering brain (laughs) that you just are able to come up with those things? That would be daunting to me to think I have to write something that's that people want to read on, on a weekly basis. Yeah, so so two things right off the bat. First of all, I never had the thought, I have to write something. Um, and I don't care whether anybody reads it or not. Um, I'm not looking to attract a following or attention. Um, I still write as if I'm writing to the 14 or 15 people that are in my executive team. And... Um, as far as uh, where I come up with content, I kind of already alluded to the fact that my brain may work a little differently than other people's brains, and 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 you you appreciated my transparency, so I'm going to be really transparent. Go for um, it. The best definition I've come up with of how my how it is to be inside of my head is it's like being in one of those restaurants where there's just enough noise level that you can carry on a conversation at your table and not get distracted, but if you get bored with the person you're talking to and you do pay attention, you can hear the other conversations around you. So that's what's going on in my head all the time is there's all these tables and conversations are going on on those tables and I can hear them. I don't have to pay attention to them. I can pay attention to the one at mine, but every so often somebody gets up from one of those tables and brings something over and drops it on the table that I'm sitting at. And that's how the musings happen. And I, I don't know another word to use except that they happen. Events, music, the things I'm reading, the things I'm listening, the things I see um, are are the topics of conversation at all these other tables. And things get put together and 
at some point during the week, um, sometimes early in the week, sometimes late in the week, um, sometimes Monday morning at three o'clock in the morning, um, I sit down and I actually just write the, the, the post, the blog post from start to finish. Um, it usually takes me about 30 or 40 minutes. They run 700 words on average, seven to 800 words. It takes me about 30 or 40 minutes. In the few hundred that I've done, I have probably done editing of any kind a dozen times. I literally just write from start. It's already done in my head somehow. And again, it's a connection that I've made between an event or a song or a lyric or something I read or something somebody did or something somebody said that made me think, I had this conversation going on in my head about how that illustrated or applied to or pointed out something that makes a difference in, in how we react to the people around us and deal with the people around us and treat the people around us. Because as I said before, that's the Kimray way, is doing that in a way that is consistently communicating that we actually believe that all the people around us are intrinsically and equally valuable. So I'm, my brain's looking for that. It's kind of like when you buy a new car and all of a sudden you realize everybody else in town has the same car you do and you never even knew that before, yes. right? So since I'm looking for that, mm -hmm. I think I just kind of naturally connect, make those connections. And, and it's actually fun. I, I don't consider it a have to or a burden. And I, I don't know if, if that's, I don't know if I'm hurting the feelings of other writers. I know that some people are tortured writers. And yeah. I, if I was tortured, I wouldn't do it. I, it's, yeah. not a, it's not a chore. It's, it's something that I enjoy doing. And, uh, and I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm staying connected with my leadership. They need to know kind of what's, how my head works. And that was, that was where it all started. And you know, I just, I'm still doing that. The fact that hundreds and hundreds of people read it and, I, people tell me all the time, oh, I forwarded it to my whole organization. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I hope I didn't my. write something that I'm <laughs> going to be embarrassed about. Because I really, when I'm writing, I'm thinking, what if I had these 15 people and we were having lunch and I was just telling them about listening to this song and, and what it meant to me. That's that's what I'm writing. So would you say it's kind of a public journal almost? Yeah. Yeah. I could, you could say that a little bit. I'm really, an, I've gotten to be pretty much an open book, so I don't really hide much. Um, I'm not too worried that people know what I'm thinking. Um, mostly because it doesn't change my value, what people think about me. That's so right. if you're, if you think I'm weird, that's okay with me. And mm -hmm. if you don't want to pay attention to me at all, that's okay with me too. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to change one person's world. Mm -hmm. So, Well, if you are secure in yourself and know and know your value and don't have to perform for other people, it just really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can just be you. So there you go. Okay. Well, that's impressive to me because that makes my brain hurt a little bit to think about doing that on a daily basis. So thank you. Um, Amy, what advice would you give to uh, a young, young person, aspiring business person or entrepreneur? Because you've started your own business and now you're starting found, uh, running a foundation. Those are scary things. Yeah, and I've done that a couple times. Um, so advice, someone told me a long time ago that the only two things in life that would last is the word of God and people. And I think especially when we're young and we're trying to make a name for ourselves and get a lot done and get, a, you know, get promotions in advance, we lose sight of, of those two things so often. Um, and we think there's gonna be plenty of time to come back to it. But I, 
my advice would be to pay attention to what's important. Um, and the valuing of people is what we're about at the foundation. It's critical. It's, it's life. At the end of the day, that's the, what's important. So in all the, in all the doing and all the acquiring, don't lose sight of what's really important. Mm -hmm. That it all comes down to people. It does. The camera way. There you go. Okay, so tell me, both of y'all, just jump in on here. And this, this we could probably go off for 30 minutes on the different ways that Kim Ray invests in the community. Because you guys, you do it in the community, out in the world, but you also do it internally as well. Um, I want to tell you a story. When my boys were probably... Oh, I don't know, this is probably 15 years ago, we were volunteering at the Shiloh camp in Oklahoma City, and there was a whole group of people that were working, and I, I said, are those volunteers? They said, yeah, that's a group from Kim Ray. They come, I don't remember if it was weekly or monthly or whatever that they came, and that really stuck with me. I had no idea what Kim Ray was at the time, no idea. I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's a company that's out there sending their people out to do that. So it's not just that you write checks, because I think, and that's something we talk about on this podcast a lot. We need to get outside of the box and thinking Absolutely. about what investing in our community looks like. It's not just writing a check. Which it has, that has to be a component, but it's not the only thing. And sometimes spending our time is more difficult oh, to much do. More, much yes. more. So I'm so I, glad. I'm yeah. so glad you brought that up, Tracy, because I say this over and over and over again, and, and there are days I don't feel like I'm getting any traction. Um, money is not going to solve the problems in the world today. And we often act like it is. And we certainly, when we hear Congress and, you know, typically we, we, they are talking about legislation and dollars, right? Putting dollars into programs. And I agree with you. Money is a, ne a necessity. There are things that we, we can't do if we don't have the funds. But if all we're doing is spending money on a problem and people aren't, again, aren't involved, nothing is actually going to change. So we're very intentional at Kim Ray about getting involved. So our giving is always directly linked to our personal involvement. We're, we're almost always gonna be willing to give to a charity if someone at Kimray is actively involved in that charity. That's where a lot of our giving gets directed. We allow our executives and our uh, junior executives and then our managers and directors at that, that level, they're given a certain amount of, of, our, of our gifting every year. They're given that they can direct to something that they're interested in. And so a lot of, uh, any given year, as much as half of our total giving is directed by our employees, mm -hmm. either through their their own involvement or, or them directly. And then when we do take on a charity, the first question we ask is, how can our people be involved? And so just as a for instance, um, we'll sponsor a, a part of or a whole house with Habitat every year. And then we fill up the work days for that house. We, we provide all of the people that they need on the various days when, when people can work on the house. Obviously, there's a lot that you have to have licensed people do. But, but I've been on, on a number of crews with our people when we've done the frame framing the day that they actually raise the walls. It's unbelievable. We show up you know, in the morning and there's a slab and a bunch of lumber sitting around and we are tired and muddy and, and worn out at the end of the day. But there's a house sitting there. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And, and, and it's amazing what that does for our people when they're experiencing what their dollars and what their effort are, are doing. So we're always going to, to ask a, a charity to tie the money that we're giving into our people being involved. Now, often we tie it directly. There's a lot of, of things that we will um, agree to give a certain amount for every employee that volunteers or every employee mm -hmm. that participates in an event and, and things like that. 
Um, so th that's just, I think that's that way I know our people are connected with the mission of our giving. I could write checks all day long and go in an employee meeting once a, once a month and say, hey, we gave $20,000 to this charity, but that doesn't change anything. Um, getting our people involved changes things. And I think if, if, we could, if we could make that more universal, again, things aren't gonna change unless people get involved in other people's lives. Uh, if you read books about systemic and generational poverty, the problem isn't money. The problem is a lack of connection, a lack of access, um, and that doesn't change. You can't give people that by writing them a check. You have to actually walk with them. You know, we have to go into the schools and mentor young people and show them. And you ask some of the things Kimberly does. Um, in the summertime, we attempt to, to hire uh, students from the local high schools, the ones that are close to Kimberly, because we find that they've not had an opportunity to be in a job where in an environment like Kimberly, right? It's not the same as working at a at the corner, you know, drugstore or something. Yeah. And so we try to bring those students in and, and we've had a number of them who have ended up working for us mm -hmm. full time after they after they get out of high school. Um, it's it seems like a small thing, but can you imagine if every small or medium sized business in the in the United States was proactively doing those kind of things, how many kids we would keep from just disappearing into the you know into the jungle as it were because mm -hmm. you know they they drop out of school and once they're out of school if they if they're not able or to afford or get into college then where do they go mm -hmm. and who are they you know who who mm -hmm. are they following well you talked about it earlier that you always believed that you could do something because you had seen people do it right so if we have if we can bring these young people in who may not necessarily come from a great background maybe not having somebody telling them you can be anything you can do anything but they're exposed to uh, being an engineer or you know absolutely. other things their world expands absolutely it expands i love that one of the great programs, um, there's a couple of schools that do it. They participate in these robotics competitions yeah. or in the solar car thing. And we always try to adopt a team. And, and for the last few years, we've adopted a team um, from the Dove Academy. Yeah. They do the, They participate in the solar car challenge. And these are kids from poor communities and poor homes who get hooked up with geeky engineers from companies like Kimray, <laughs> and they get completely involved in building these really cool cars. They do all the work themselves, and we just kind of help them with, mm -hmm. you know, and, and give them some space and maybe give them tools and stuff. Those kind of things, that could be the turning point for, for a young person, right? That could be the change where they realize what, what they're capable of. I just think there's no way, and I, I'm happy that our government does things, and I, I think there is a, a, a place for a federal response to our community's needs, but most of our needs are not going to be solved at a federal or a state level. They're going to be solved at a community level. It requires relationship, and we don't have a relationship with the federal government. You have a relationship with the people who live down the street from you or work in the community that you live in. And so I think it's, I think it's absolutely a sacred duty of those of us who have the resources and have access to provide that for other people and do that in ways. So when you talk about community, that's what Kimray is about. That's what we're looking for. I'm not very interested. I don't want anybody that's listening to this to read me wrong, but um, we don't donate money to, to ship people overseas to do things in you know faraway countries. I don't have enough money to solve the to, to fund the things that are solving problems right here in Oklahoma City. I, I think that our dollars need to stay right here and take care of the people who are in the community that we live and work mm -hmm. in. Your neighbors. Yes. Well, when you guys do the uh, habitat, that's 
you, you have an underlying blessing there and that that's, that's team building. Yeah, it's absolutely. so fun that they spend absolutely. time together. And I, I, I hope there's other companies out there listening going, you, you pay money to go do a ropes course. Don't do that. <laughs> Not that ropes courts aren't, aren't great or go play paintball or whatever. Sometimes, you know, that's a good thing too. But just go do volunteer together. Just find something that moves you or makes you angry or whatever, whatever need you see, and just go do it together. Yeah. People like Amy who grew up on a farm think the rest of us are silly that we pay money to go to a gym to do what she had to do every day growing up. And, no I, and I need to tell you a story about Please. Amy. She she and her brother, she has a twin brother. Um, they're not identical twins, she okay. keeps telling me. But um, that's a joke, right? Cause are they? Oh, good. No, well, because boys, if they're yeah. identical, well, they'd have to be the same. They would be a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. Go ahead. So she has a twin brother and her, her brother and she uh, raised the money to pay their way through college uh, by, by picking and selling peaches uh, off this peach grove that they had. And so she spent summers for years picking, I, I imagine she has picked a million peaches. I don't even know how many peaches she's handled. Um, so in circles where she runs here in Oklahoma City, her nickname is Peaches. That's what we call oh, her. Oh, I so. love that. That's awesome. I can totally see that. <laughs> and it doesn't hurt that she has that southern accent. Yeah, she right, does so. have that southern accent. That's right. That's right. Thanks, guys. So g- tell us more, Kimmel Foundation, what are ways that you Because I know we could seriously talk forever and how you guys are investing in the community. Is there more that you wanted to add? Because I know Thomas is going to go on the humble side and not necessarily share everything. Not that you have to share everything, but... Oh, as the Kimmel Foundation, right now we are working with Kimray on things like that. We try to participate with them. We're small, um, but we are working in that way. I mean, our goal is to have a lot of community involvement and community interaction. Kimray does an amazing job, and they are very connected um, with the community in doing. There's just a myriad of things. I mean, we could go on and on. I know. <laughs> and that's part of. Yeah, that's part of being a part of Kim Ray. And to circle back around to our initial question, you know, why did I want to become a part of Kim Ray? There it is. Mm-hmm. And the foundation is going to, we're just going to piggyback on that yeah. and join them. Just keep it going. Absolutely. Just keep it going. Keeping people first. There you go. The Kim Ray way. So, um, Thomas, I'm sure everybody, well, I don't know if everybody's thinking this, but I'm thinking this. You got any more books in you? I was afraid you were going to ask me that question. So when I wrote Recovering Leadership, I told everybody I would never write another. I didn't want to write Recovering Leadership. I got tricked into writing the book um, by my mentor and a good friend of mine who invited me to be the keynote speaker at an event. And I agreed to that. And then he told me I needed to have a book in order to be, you know, in order to have the whatever the oh, credentials the to be. Um, and so so we did that. And, and it was uh, it was an amazing experience. I, I'm not going to say it was fun. There were moments when it was not fun at all. Um, the book's kind of in three sections, and the middle section was very difficult to write because it was just kind of reliving the experience of, of going through what I went through. Um, but yes, we are planning on releasing another book. We're not entirely sure when. We um, being Kim Ray. We well, no, being... we being the we being Amy and I. Um, oh. So I've, I've recruited Amy to co-author a book with me um, to recovering leadership. Um, talks to some about what it's like to to live in a in a community of recovery in terms of of leadership but we don't give a lot of how to it's not a how to book at all it's a narrative it's my story um and that and that was that was all it was ever meant to be 
And so I'm not going to say we're going to write a how-to book because that sounds sounds silly, but we're going to write a book about the the seven ways, about how to actually do what we're talking about doing and what it looks like. And we're going to highlight other companies and other people so that people get a much broader sense of, of what it looks like to actually live out this concept that everybody's equally intrinsically valuable. And so uh, Amy wants to say something, I think. Go so ahead, it's Amy. a process book. Yes. It is. It is. And okay. it's about the seven ways. Then the working title of this book okay. is Bison, Not Buffalo. <laughs> nice. So you have to ask Thomas, okay. why Bison, Not Buffalo? Okay. See, I went to the University of Colorado, so I... I'm all about the buffalo. Yeah, but they're not the buffalo. Bison. I don't know. Tell me. See, I yeah, should know so, these things. So the apparently. North American bison is not a buffalo. Okay. It's not a buffalo at all. Uh, there are no buffalo in North America. There are only buffalo in uh, South America and Africa and places. And they are, um, they're all bovine at some level, like cows and those kind of things. But they're not even directly related. Bison and buffalo are completely different um, species of animals. In fact, the scientific name for bison, the last three, you know, they all have like seven or eight yeah. names. The last three names are bison. They're bison, bison, bison. I can't get any clearer than that. They're bison. <laughs> so what you're not saying buffalo. is it's a bison. And, and, and yes, I'm a little impassioned about this. Uh, apparently. So in fact, I, I, I'm, I'm starting a movement. I have the URL bisonnotbuffalo.org. And we're going to start a move. We're starting a movement to eradicate people calling the North American bison buffalo. The bison care, and so do I. So to pull this back, <laughs> bison nut buffalo, we're so used to looking at what we call, have always called buffalo on the plains and seeing buffalo, and it's really bison. So with the book, you were so used to seeing success in one way, mm -hmm. and it's really not, that's really not success. Success is really about valuing people. Mm -hmm. It's really bison not buffalo okay i like that because it's got you got the double meaning i'm really glad amy cleared that up because i kind of i kind of went off the reservation there for a second I apologize you were really excited about it i think all these bison are secretly offended out there Clearly. on the plains <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny oh well i appreciate that I, i'm sure you're familiar with Brene brown and she's all about vulnerability and and sharing uh, life with each other because we can help each other when we talk about our struggles. So I appreciate that you're going to put that process out there. Um, I'd, I'd like that you say it's not a how-to because people think check, check, check. Okay, I'm fixed. And no, there's absolutely not. There's it's, way more peeling of the life. layers. It's life. Oh, it's ugly, right? Life is. Uh, life is beautiful. It's wow. messy. It's messy. There you go. That's even better. the messes are. Even the messes have uh, have purpose and. I think that when, when people say things are difficult or things are ugly, that's, I think that's a way of, of, of looking at the world, and I think you can choose how you mm -hmm. look at the world. And right. I'm not saying there isn't ugliness in the world, but amazingly, even in ugliness, sometimes we, there are lessons to be learned, and mm -hmm. that's, the ability to do that is a beautiful thing, right? If mm -hmm. we can look at the behavior of other people, um, not judging them, but learning from, mm -hmm. from their behavior mm -hmm. is very hard to do, right? It's very hard not to be judgmental and yet to be discerning. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that we strive to be. And, and again, if I really honestly think you are equally and intrinsically valuable with me, then even when you do something that's patently stupid, I'm not going to call you stupid. I'm just going to say, hey, that was not a great choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to make that choice because I can see the, the problems that it's causing for you. And if I care about you enough, I might come alongside you and say, hey, 
have you thought about maybe doing this differently? Mm-hmm. Can I help you do this differently? Can we mm-hmm. talk about this? Mm-hmm. Instead of me telling you you're wrong, maybe asking what could I do to help you, um, that would change the environment that yeah. we live in, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Significantly, I think. Absolutely. And again, that's that. maybe that is messy, but I think it's a beautiful mess. It is. It is. It's, it's much You better. started this by saying your kids taught you that you don't have any control. Yeah. Kids are messy. Oh, my gosh. At six, they're a disaster, right? And then <laughs> they, they grow up and they go on and they make incredibly poor decisions sometimes and you just watch them doing these things and Mm -hmm. you can't stop it you can't Mm -hmm. you know they have to learn some lessons the hard way Mm -hmm. we all do Um, but that doesn't mean you don't love them it doesn't mean you don't pick them up and say okay you know that was tough wasn't it maybe what did we learn (laughs) exactly (laughs) and at least we don't tend to do that though for everybody Mm -hmm. and that's what everybody needs Uh, I know that I have deep darkness in my heart sometimes thinking, I mean, the thoughts in my brain that I think about people and it's like, I just need to be transformed daily. And so I appreciate you writing the process and sharing the process with people because I have those conversations sometimes with my, well, both of my children, but my oldest in particular on the phone and you hear these choices that he's making and things that he's doing and, and I just go... Well, that's a choice. That's one way to go. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You can't. It's going to be messy, and you know it's going to be messy. Yeah. But you just walk alongside, and you just keep going. You just keep going. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so both of you, give me your thirty-something motivational statement. Your call to action. What do you want to leave people with today? Okay. If you turn on the news anytime in the last six months, mm-hmm. you see that. There's never been a better time than now for us to show people that we are community, that we care, and that everyone has value. I would say that if anything we've said today strikes a chord with you, if it's given you an idea or a thought, don't just leave it there. It's not someone else's responsibility. If you see something that can change the world, then let it start with you. Mm-hmm. Um, join somebody if you need to, but don't just sit and watch. Now's the time. It is. Now's the time. Get up. Get up. Get to work. Um, that's a tough question because there's so many things, and I, th- I think you wanted to just do this in like 30 seconds or something. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. But, um, I was watching a movie the other night um, called The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. Um, and there was a line in there that I, that I thought was, was really significant. Someone in the movie said, we, we settle for the love we think we deserve. Hmm. I think that um, a lot of people are in the position that they're in because they don't believe they deserve better than what, better than what they have. So my advice to people is that, um, that, that we all deserve we all deserve to be cared for, and we all deserve to be respected. We don't necessarily deserve a big house or a particular car, but we deserve to be human beings, and we're not always treated that way. And so I would say um, if you're in that kind of a situation, whether that's the place that you work or the people that you're experiencing life with, um, you have the ability. We, we can't always pick where we came from, but we can always decide where we're going. Hmm. And so I would, I would encourage people. And, and along those lines, I wrote down some questions that I'm going to ask myself in 2021. Uh, four simple questions that I think will help me make better decisions this year. The first is, instead of asking myself if this is going to make me happy, I'm going to ask myself, will this enlarge or diminish me? In other words, what impact is this going to have on me as a human being? 
instead of being quick to give my feedback to people, we're, we're often so quick to tell people what we think and what they should do. Um, I'm going to ask people what they, what they were really wanting to say or what they were really trying to communicate. It's kind of another take on, on seeking to understand before being understood. And then I'm going to ask myself, instead of asking myself, can I finish? Because I'm getting a little later in life. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not rushing myself into the grave, but you get to a certain point in your life, you realize you're not going to live forever. And I have visions and dreams that, will, that are bigger than I'm going to be able to accomplish. And so I'm becoming less concerned about whether I can finish things and more concerned about whether I'm willing to keep going, whether I'm willing to keep striving for something. And then last but not least, I'm, I'm a data junkie. I'm an engineer. I love to know things. I love to understand everything. And sometimes I let that get in the way of me being present for people. Mm-hmm. And so instead of asking myself, what can I know? In other words, instead of trying to find out all the details and all the information, instead focus on what is it that I'm, that I'm supposed to know in this moment? What, it, what am I supposed to realize about this person or about this situation in this moment? And, and through those things, my intention is to, is to be more intentional. That's kind of redundant. But um, I think that intentionality is something that's really important. Um, and I don't see enough people uh, being intentional. We tend to kind of wing it. And we're, we're expending time and energy. And we don't, get those, but we don't get time back. Like Amy said very eloquently early on in this, in this podcast, um, time is going by. And I want to make sure that whatever I have left, whether that's 25 or 30 more years or whether that's two days, I want to expend that time in ways that impact the people around me positively. Well, we definitely need more intentionality. Um, Last year with all of our pivots we had to do, we had to slow down and reevaluate. And I think that that was one of the great pivots that we had in 2020 made us sit back and go, okay, we're shut home for two weeks. Do I know how to relate to the people in my home? You know, was that for some of us that was daunting to go, oh, my gosh, we're going to look at these same people (laughs) for however long. UK is back in the lockdown right now. You know, you get to be home, but you need to be intentional because that's what matters right there. Right. It's those humans. It's not the data we know or what's sitting in our garage or not sitting in our garage or, you know, whatever title, your pedigree. It doesn't matter. It all comes back to people. Amen. Amen. There you go. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Tracy. No, Amy and Thomas, thank you thank for you. taking the time today. I appreciate that. And listeners, thank you again for joining us for another conversation around good at Made Possible By. We are all about sharing stories of good, stories from around the world. So if you have a story of a business that is making an impact in your community, please reach out to me. I am Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y, at madepossibleby.us. We've got a couple podcasts coming up I'm excited to share with you. We have a woman from the UK sharing some stories with us, and we have some people um, from the Caribbean that we're going to meet with next week as well. Well, I'm not going to meet with. I wish I was meeting with them. We're going to Zoom with them, but I'm going to jump on a plane. That would be awesome. But anyhow, thank you again for joining us, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss another story of good. Thank you for listening in to another episode of the Made Possible By podcast. Made Possible By helps make community giving easy. The businesses we serve love to give back to their communities with their time, product, and cash. It's rewarding, but not easy. So let us help you continue to do good in your community.